Hey friends, welcome to another episode of the 10 Laws Podcast with East Forest. I am East Forest. Thank you for joining us this week. I've got a conversation with Dr. Sarah King. Uh... Dr. Sarah is someone that I met at the Ramdas retreat in, in August in North Carolina. We we're both there with uh, Lama Sultram and Krishna Das, uh, among others, my partner Marissa Rada Wepner. Uh, Sarah is a neuroscientist and an artist, and um, she, she's got her, her interests in a lot of different places. Now, as you hear in this podcast, the way she kind of made her way towards whatever she might define herself as today was a long journey and a really fascinating one and not one that came easily perhaps it came naturally but it also came with a lot of choices and struggle and just amazing things along the way so i know you're going to enjoy this conversation and enjoy diving into her world um i don't have a lot of housekeeping other than that i'm basically back from japan that was amazing uh, I'm going to post one of the sets I played with with Peter Broderick in Tokyo up in the Patreon, I think at the end of the year. Uh, but just thanks to everyone on that Patreon who's supporting. I see some people have joined the free tier. You can like try it out. Uh, feel free to join us. We have a monthly Zoom council, and I get to share all sorts of unreleased music, B-sides. It's, it's pretty much the only place I can share stuff like that, and it's a joy to be able to have a community to to, to be able to hear that stuff and put it somewhere. Uh, Patreon.com slash East Forest. And what else is going on? I'm, I've got a show in Seattle really soon on November 3rd and another show in LA on November 7th. And both of these are basically re- release celebrations for my new and upcoming studio album, Music for the Deck of the Titanic. We have released a few singles, but the entire album is coming out on November 3rd super excited and the vinyl you can pre-order that now uh, by the way the burren vinyl speaking of peter broderick is now shipping so thanks to everyone who's put that order in if you want a first pressing of either of these albums they're coming out on bright antenna records and you can go do that now just uh, check out the shop at eastforest.org and i uh, can't wait to share more of that record there's some deep instrumental cuts on there that aren't the singles that i'm I'm looking forward for you to hear too and just tell you more about it. But these shows are the first time I'm going to get to play some of the songs from this. We'll still do our deep dive into the internal landscape and take a journey together, of course, and just weave in some of these songs as well. So if you're around or you know anyone in Seattle, let them know November 3rd and in L.A. or in the L.A. area, November 7th. And L.A. will be with Mary M., who is amazing. And I can't wait to do anything. I've never done anything with her live. So that's going to be a total joy. Uh, I will tell you more about the trip to Japan. I'm going to record an episode with Rada, my partner, because all sorts of amazing stories and things that went on over there. So no need to go into it right now. That might be the next episode. It was awesome. (laughs) And really interesting. And so lots of lots of discoveries there that... uh, I'm looking forward to sharing with you. Certainly, there's lots going on in the world, and this is uh, another heavy time. I mean, there's, it feels like we're always going through heavy times, but this is this is one of those nodal points where it takes a lot to curate both information coming in and, of course, our response to it out there in the world. So I'm just sending my support and asking that, uh, you know, find your center. 
do what you can to uh, curate that and and be working and acting from a place uh, that isn't just reactionary, but to feel. It's also important to feel. I know Ramdas had that great line that sometimes we think that if we really felt everything, if we really let it all in, that we, we would break. And so we sort of wall ourselves off. And then he liked to say that you won't. You won't. Like it, it things can really hurt but they also are meant to process through it. It's part of the bravery of just being a human being. And certainly everything we witness these days is not how it ever was done before. Like we didn't know this much information and that's where the personal curation comes in. But it's not about necessarily sticking your head in the sand. It's just about recognizing that we we have to curate that uh, and we have to take care of ourselves so that we can continue to be uh, show up as we are needed in this world. So I hope the uh, peace meditation from last week was useful. Uh, We continue to do those sorts of things and share these sorts of things on the Patreon. And of course, you know, this podcast itself is evergreen. I've put out maybe a dozen meditations or more, I think. Um, I put them in a playlist for all the ones from this podcast on Spotify. There's There's a playlist of all the meditations that have ever been released. Um, but what I'm trying to say is because it's an evergreen podcast, feel free to go back in time, not just to look at the further meditations, but any conversation or any person you might see that's interesting to you, uh, their conversation should be just as relevant today as it was then. And that is one of the aims of this, uh, this show. So let's dive into this. I hope you enjoy it. This is our uh, new friend, Dr. Sarah King. How are you? Mm. I'm alive. <laughs> Deep question. <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> that feels like a cosmic triumph every day. Um, first thing I do in the morning when I open up my eyes is I, I lay a hand on my heart. I just check in. That's a good practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I try. I've. If I can remember, I try before my feet hit the ground to say something like, today's going to be awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> something. Do you always say that with the same amount of umph? Or do you find sometimes no. Are you, you kidding say me? it and it's no, more it's of a it's more like, work. all right, it's going to be awesome. Where's the coffee? You know, <laughs> like, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Today's going to be outstanding. Yeah, yeah. Today's going to be amazing. Yeah. It'll be a lot more outstanding in about <laughs> five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, mm. no, it is a miracle to get out of bed, of course. Mm-hmm. It really is. Mm-hmm. And weird to, I still think it's strange to be in dreamland and then wake into another dream. And then it's just more strange that you just forget the dreams. I think that's strange too. Do you forget your dreams? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, they, they drift very quickly. Yeah, if I wrote yeah. them down, I think they'd stick around. But I, um, ever since I was a little girl, I tend to remember a good deal of my dreams, my dreams, many of them stick around like memories. No way. And I can recall dreams all the way back to my childhood. And they just sort of, they kind of mishmash around with my memories of the quote unquote real world. And then what gets really interesting, I was actually talking to um, our homie David Nickturn about this a couple days ago. He, he was at, so we crossed paths at the Ramdas retreat in North Carolina in August and David was there as well. Yes. Just a little background. 
Yeah. For the the vast listenership out there. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And um yeah, I was telling him about this phenomenon that I've been having um more frequently in life as of late where I'll be in the middle of doing something. In fact, the last time this happened to me, I was in London and I was eating ramen. And the person comes out, you know, steaming bowl of ramen, places it down, dramatic flourish in front of me. And I have the striking recollection that I dreamt about that exact moment. The table setting, the server, the smell, all of my surroundings. I know for a fact I had that dream a couple of months ago. And so then there's this like rumbling that happens in my stomach and almost like a feeling of like. Why? What what, like. (laughs) What do I do with this? It's uncomfortable. Uh, It's uncomfortable because there's no explanation for why. Yeah. Wouldn't you, isn't, I would think your hard drive would start to get quite full in your brain. (laughs) Yeah. That's a lot of dreams, you know. Well, hmm. You got a lot of hard drive space. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me a bit, when we were speaking of the brain and hard drive space, uh-huh. uh, maybe let's start with just a little bit of background about yourself. And I know some of it involves hard drives in the brain. <laughs> and and enlighten us. Like, tell us a little bit about what you're into, what you're passionate about, what you've been up to lately. Absolutely. Um I wear many hats. So I uh, technically started my career as a research scientist when I was 15. So I have been... So how does that work? Like like Doogie Howser style? (laughs) A little bit. So back in the day, um, NASA was actually recruiting um, mega nerd scientists from high schools around the company, or not the company, around the... Actually, that's an interesting Freudian slip around the country, the company. (laughs) Mm. And where was this? Where were you growing up? Um, At the time, I mean, I grew up all over the place. I didn't really have one spot that I grew up um, because I experienced a lot of chronic homelessness as a child. Mm. So I was all over the place. At this point in time, I had moved to be with my mother's side of my family in Southern California. Okay. And um, so Cornell had a program called SHARP. And they would recruit high school uh, research scientists from around the country and then send us to Ivy League universities. And we could pick any department we wanted to. And then we could work there. And, and it was paid. So it was like our first real professional position. And then we had to produce a research project from out of that. So that was, was the, like the summer because you're still yeah you're 15. it was a summer program okay. mm-hmm. so you, right. you lived your entire summer at the university I was at Cornell um, and I have no idea why to this day I picked paleontology <laughs> because dinosaurs are cool yeah I mean it just doesn't really track with my I mean is this when like Jurassic Park would just come out or yeah. <laughs> It's like we're all into it. No, that's true. That's true, actually. Now I do see the influence. Um, But I wasn't even looking at dinosaur bones. I was looking at this tiny microscopic, um, this microscopic creature that I remember. It was called Echinostoma caproni. And when it sheds its shell, it's about the grain, it's like a grain of sand. 
and there's billions of them, and we were tracking their movement at the bottoms of the ocean in order to understand more about solar winds. Wow, there's a lot going on there. Okay. I know. Yeah. Bottom of the ocean. Bottom of the ocean. Solar winds somehow <laughs> affecting, I don't even know, sunlight reached down there. <laughs> Or radiation, I suppose. Because it impacts the movement, the the cycles of the ocean. Uh, Ocean current. Yeah, ocean currents. And you can kind of like read ocean currents and their relationship to solar winds by looking at the shells of these little creatures. Okay. And then fast forward, once I actually got to my um, undergraduate education, I kind of traveled between linguistics and neuroscience Black studies in my undergrad, Spanish, then hopped over to UCLA, and I was um, just straddling two different departments, political science and African-American studies, and I was really interested in um, Western philosophical interpretations of being and becoming. I was obsessed with Nietzsche. And what being and becoming, like what is our even what is our capacity to even, you know, from an epistem epistemological point of view, to know anything? How do we know anything? How do we produce knowledge? And then from a ontological point of view, how do we know that we exist? And what does it mean to be? And then I was trying to like intersect that with notions of race. And how it is that race is this phenomenon that exists outside of us. It is applied to us. It's applied to our consciousness. But we don't come onto the planet with these ideas. And I really wanted to know. I had these questions around, like, how it is that um, the act of being racialized, especially here in the United States, how does that impact our experience of consciousness? Fascinating to me that you had an interest in linguistics because I think about the role language plays in this. And I heard a story about someone who had some kind of accident where they basically lost language. Yeah. Not like, I can't speak. Like, there was no language. Yes. And they were in this place of just nothingness, in a sense. Mm. Just being. And so they had to retrain like they had to first retrain them like, you know, this is a cup. Mm -hmm. A cup is a thing external yes. of you. Kind of, I mean, it sounds we can't even really conceptualize it because it's you have to turn off default modes of our thinking that just exist. That's right. But once over weeks or months, they slowly started to put it back together and started to learn how to speak and then got words. And then they could tell they reported back on the experience. They're essentially in a state of nirvana. I don't mean like utter bliss all the time, just like mm. the nothingness was just, there was no inner monologue. No mind. No mind. No mind, no self. And so it makes me think about this sort of, even this racialization or the external becoming internal, the role that the inner monologue and, and language plays in that. Absolutely. I mean, I got to tell you, like a huge part of the reason why I was interested in this is because I remember as a child, um, and again, I was like moving in and out of, I'll say this, when you don't have a home address, it's really hard to sign up for a school because that's mm. one of the first things I want to know is where do you live? And my mom didn't want it to be discovered that we didn't have a home address because that could implicate all kinds of child services and stuff. So 
I had a very unusual upbringing in that a lot of the time when my mom was looking for work and she had no childcare, right? Um, she would simply, and imagine me, I'm like five, six, seven years old. She would take me to the nearest public library and she would say, it's 8 a.m. I'm going to be back for you 6 or 7 p.m. Don't leave. Have fun. No phone. Of course. No phone. Right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. No email. No, no. <laughs> no technology to distract me. Yeah. I probably had like a couple of bucks maybe for something from the vending machine. And so it would literally be me at this like vast public library with the rest of, you know how like, like, um, people experiencing housing insecurity tend to flock to public libraries, their safe spaces. So it'd be me, this tiny little kid, just like roaming the library stacks, roaming these halls of, of language, if you will, and <clears throat> teaching myself a lot of the time. So you didn't go to school for chunks there? Huge chunks is, of Is time. that the implication? Oh. Yeah, I was probably in school maybe like a couple of months out of the year. And then the rest of the time, it was like me, if we had a house or if we were in a hotel or a, wherever wherever we were, like I just have like my stack of library books or I'd be in the library and I would just read everything. Did, did you have siblings? I did, but they were much older. Ah. And so I was kind of like raised like an only child. Hmm. All right. So you studied the little guys in the ocean mm -hmm. and then you went to UCLA and then you, you got into uh, political science uh -huh. and black studies, racial studies. of Yes, African-American studies. Okay. I was in those two departments at once. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm just bringing us up to today. Yes. Uh -huh. All right. And then? And I'm asking myself questions about consciousness, being mm -hmm. and becoming. And I really wanted to know like where the phenomenon of identity, including race, like where does it even come from? Why do we have to have an identity? How is it like emergent in our consciousness? And why is it that divisiveness, such as racism, for example, why is it still around? It makes no sense. Because if you think about it, human beings, I feel, were built to cooperate. We're built to empathize. We're built to be compassionate. Like that's the foundation of how you keep a family together, build a society, build a civilization. So all this div divisiveness that we're currently experiencing right now, it goes completely counter to our best interests. And I was very interested in that. Yeah, I, I immediately I think about like, what is it when you get over 180 people? Mm -hmm. uh, sort of the early tribe sizes and what we can sort of our brains have been built to hold that in our community size. Yeah. yeah. So when it starts to grow, maybe there's a level of competition or scarcity, uh, violence, yeah. that sort of stuff. Possibly. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, there there is this um, conception in the mind and the brain, people who it's like in-group, out-group empathy, Oh, if you look like me, you think like me, we're kind of around the same area and we're in the same tribe. Okay, I'm more likely probably to feel safety and belonging and secure. 
oh, you don't look like me. You don't believe the things that I do. You live, you live a little bit further away, but just close enough so that you could probably have some impact on my resources that I need to survive. Oh, okay. Well, then that is probably going to trigger the trauma response inside of the human nervous system. It's built into our autonomic nervous system, right? Everybody's heard of it. Fight, flight, freeze, faint. All day long, we're like navigating through these different social situations and the brain is constantly scanning and monitoring our environment. Are you safe? Should I approach? To what degree should I approach? Is this like a we're going to be friends kind of approach? Do I need something from you? Do you need something from me? Right? The brain is constantly scanning, monitoring, especially along the lines of other if you're different from me, does that trigger a sense of curiosity and awe, right? Because curiosity and awe are probably going to uh, trigger those aspects of the brain that are like, ooh, like, I want to get to know this person. Maybe there's something I could learn about myself, about the world, about their world, because they're different from me, right? But if we go into that survival mode, right? A lot of people like to call it more like reptilian brain response of, ooh, if you're different from me, then I have to, I have to put on my armor. I have to get, I have to prepare for war in a sense, because you, you, you're different from me. And so that means I'm afraid you might want to take things from me. Yeah. Right. That scarcity mindset. And that is flowing, running rampant right now in our individual and collective nervous systems. Do you think the role of social media or just our ability to suck in information online where there's no filter of, is it safe or not? We just assume like, I'm just sitting here at the computer. Yeah. I can get in, I can get a hundred thousand pieces of input, bad news stories, images, pornography, right. social media, all of it. Right. And there's no, there's no part of us that's developed to say like, hold up, cowboy. Yeah. That might be, that might trigger other responses. Exactly. Uh, maybe it's engendering a sense of competition and then polarization. Yeah. And then we get all sorts of crazy things happening. Yeah, I think that's what the algorithms are are built to do, right? Because that's that's driving the doom scrolling. They want you to, they want you to stick yeah. around. They want you to take in as much content, spend as much time as possible on these platforms. And I think it's been pretty well documented from the, um, was it the Facebook leaks of research information yeah. that what gets people to stick around is what's triggering this trauma response, right? I mean, kitten videos are very popular also, and I guess that can give us a window of hope. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I think they're Dogs like the number cats. one most popular thing on the entire internet, period, cat videos. Yeah, I think it's probably, I don't know. I, re I looked this up once, and it was something between, I want to say 10 and 20% of internet traffic, which if you think about the global warming impacts <laughs> of cats, it's, it's their it's their fault. <laughs> yeah, I've yeah. never been a cat person. Yeah, that yeah. Just cements it for me. Yeah, we solved it. We solved it. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Doing good work. Yeah, um, yeah. So, but then you went on to do some postdoctoral work that evolved a bit more, correct? Into more fields. Absolutely. I mean, one thing that I'd like to talk about was, um, you know, in the middle of my grad work, so this is when I was getting my first two master's degrees, and I was actually pretty frustrated because um, 
nobody, the way that it works in academia is if you want to study something, typically it's, it's very nepotism driven. You have to have somebody who's above you, who's a mentor, who's established and who's in that field and says, yes, I study that and I will help you study that phenomenon. And so it doesn't really matter to a certain extent if you're a student and you discover some amazing gap in the literature. Oh my God, this has never been studied before. Nobody's examined this amazing thing. This would be so innovative. If you don't have somebody to sign off on that, hmm. usually it's not going to go anywhere. Hmm. So I was going around to all my professors and I was like, I'm really interested. I want to understand how to study the phenomenon of consciousness and race and racialization, where does this even come from? What is the seed of it, right? And at the same time, um, I had started my personal yoga practice and a meditation practice. And I was starting to go on like five-day, seven-day, 10-day Vipassana retreats, specifically at Spirit Rock. And in the context of these Vipassana meditation retreats, I was starting to, and in my yoga practice, I was starting to cultivate a very different relationship with my sense of self. Because I was a person, and maybe you might infer or not, growing up a young black woman in the United States, experiencing a lot of the traumas that come along with poverty, not having enough food to eat, not having a roof over your head. I was constantly not knowing. I had probably attended somewhere between 13 or 15 schools by the time I was done with high school. Wow. That's a lot of transients, right? Yeah. Um, and so I was holding, in total honest truth, I was grappling with... Um, I was diagnosed with PTSD and depression and severe anxiety. I was, I was really struggling with my mental health when I was in grad school. And at the same time, I had these questions about consciousness and I was going to my professors and nobody was willing to back me up in terms of what I wanted to study. And then I remember um, one day, and this is actually, I think this might be my first time talking about this publicly, but I've been really encouraged by a lot of the conversation within academia right now around the neuroscience of psychedelics. Like I want to talk about my personal experience more because a lot of people, when they ask me, oh, you know, how did you come upon this path of studying neuroscience? There's my academic response. And there's a whole story that I could tell around that, which is interesting. But really, it was the first time that I took acid. And this was during this graduate school experience. And I think in the context of that journey, it was the first time that I ever experienced a relationship with myself and my own mind that completely expanded beyond the boundaries of all of the pain and suffering I had ever experienced in my entire lifetime. Mm. It was like my relationship to being in my body up until that point, it felt very um, prison-like. I felt imprisoned by my suffering. I felt imprisoned by the catastrophizing thoughts that were like on a loop endlessly. And it seemed like 
no matter how much therapy I went to, no matter how many books I went to, like no matter the resources that I tried to pull in, even with my yoga and meditation practice, it was kind of getting me to these like um, moments of spaciousness. But the suffering was still so acute that um, I was really grappling really intensely with um, feeling suicidal. And I did not want to continue on with my studies at that point. I was like, how much, like, what is the use of me, like, bringing all of this brain energy to these studies and trying to um, contribute to knowledge production if I feel like I don't actually want to live? What's the use? So that experience was really pivotal for me because, and I remember. <laughs> can kind of like picture me I had like dreadlocks at the time and I was like running around on the beach in Venice Beach in Santa Monica and I just remember chanting to myself over and over again oh my goodness I'm a being of light oh my goodness I'm a being of light who I am is a being of light and I felt this this luminous, radiant, incredibly transformative sense of being connected to everything and everyone around me. It didn't matter. This is kind of, I'm pivoting it a little bit back to my questions around consciousness and identity. For the first time in my life, I had this experience of, I don't care what this person looks like. You woke up this morning, you exist, I exist. What's happening right now? The fact that we exist and we can apprehend, we can be aware of our awareness. You know, the fact that we can think, perceive, believe, right. yeah. communicate at all. It just struck me as the most profound miracle that I was completely asleep to prior to that. Was, was the Vipassana or Spirit Rock experiences before this? Um, or after this, did they? They were. I Spirit Rock specifically was after this. Um, I had started to go on very like short one and two and three day retreats at UCLA with their Mindful Awareness Research Center. Um, so I think it was this uh, one moment with LSD that really prompted me because there was something. There was something that I felt, there was some qualitative state of mind that I felt that I had touched into very briefly during my yoga practice, very briefly during these one and two day retreats. And I was curious, well, what would happen with my relationship with my mind if I tried five days, seven days, 10 days? Yeah. Yeah. So that experience, thank you for sharing about that. Uh, did that then propel you into like where because you told me at, at the retreat that you were doing some work around i believe it was music and meditation or is this art no it's art art yeah yeah, yeah. so I, i'm interested in getting there yeah <laughs> it seems like there's we're now, on a journey we're on a <laughs> yeah there is there is a that's a pretty pivotal moment mm -hmm. of sort of consciousness awakening for yourself. Absolutely. And yeah. was that breaking you a bit out of or a turning point in the depression in the absolutely. suicidal ideation? Yeah. Yeah, it uh -huh. absolutely was. All of a sudden, um I felt 
like there was some sort of resource inside of me because I was very aware that what was happening was within me. It wasn't being applied to me. There was like a chemical molecular reorganization that I was very aware of. Right. And then that really led me to ask questions around, okay, how can I take this study? How can I take this self-inquiry deeper? And that led me to go into an interdisciplinary PhD program where I was straddling the education, neuroscience, and anthropology departments. And the question that I had, right, was still around like, why is divisiveness so entrenched? Where does it come from? And clearly this gets socialized into us because we don't enter into the world as as like newborns with these with these feelings inside of us right toward the other and i thought okay my question was is yoga and meditation being taught in schools no <laughs> it was not much <laughs> it was it it at the time when I started asking this question, this was back in um, 2011, it was just a small group of schools. It wasn't happening mm-hmm. very much. And in fact, when I brought this to my department, they were like, oh my gosh. They were like, if you go down this route of trying to find an organization that is doing this, you're going to get sued. This is like this is like separation of church and state. I don't even like, how can this even happen? And I was like, no. I know that it's happening. I know that there is like a different vision around education, education and learning that is centered around the somatic and the body, like exploring the mind-body connection. And I found that. And that was really like my introduction to getting deeper into studying the neuroscience of mindfulness, right? Because before I was approaching it as a practitioner. And if I was going to understand, well, why is it that um, things have shifted on a policy level to even allow yoga and meditation to be brought into schools? It happened on a national federal level, actually, in 2016. There was a passage of policies that um, opened up a window for what was called socio-emotional learning curriculums to happen in school. And within that, the neuroscience community was very helpful because Within education, they realized, oh, um, emotions, giving students the capacity to regulate their emotions, regulate their nervous systems is a good thing for learning because of the impact that that has on the brain. And yoga and meditation was being studied in universities as forms of intervention that actually really help with the modulation of the nervous system response, the trauma response. So there was a revolution that was happening inside of schools that was Mm. bringing yoga and meditation in to be studied. And one of the things that I found, the reason why I know you said you wanted to get to like, well, why art? Like, how did you get to art? Was because the students that I was studying came from communities of color. And so as a research scientist, if you're being responsible, you're not just barging into a community and like assuming that you have all the answers. It's really all about building trust and cultivating relationships. 
And in the context of those relationships, then you start to learn about the very complex dynamics that are happening inside of that space. And even though, like, yes, there were some people who were all about it within these communities, right? Yoga and meditation, they're like anything to help our kids. And the kids were really getting a lot of benefit out of it, some of them. Others would respond and say, what is this? This isn't for me. This is way too lofty. This is way too for like privileged people with like $150 yoga pants and all kinds of time on their hands. Like I'm just up here trying to survive on a day to day and you want me to stop and breathe and pay attention to what, like what, like how is that to have Mm -hmm. any benefit? And then on top of that, another thing that I was discovering through my dissertation research is that um, maybe this wasn't necessarily the case for me as a person who was navigating healing trauma, but for some people who are in a very activated state of trauma in their nervous systems, meditation and pranayama practices actually are not appropriate interventions at that time. It can actually be really activating to the yeah. trauma that's in there. Turn up systems. the dial. It turn yeah, it turns it up to eleven. <laughs> that's a spinal tap joke. I, I never yeah. know whether or not somebody's well, gonna I mean I know it. <laughs> okay. You've got some kind of rock and poster behind you. So it's like <laughs> behind you we're seeing who's that? Um, this is a Long Beach metal band called Hyrax, H-Y-R-A-X. And uh, yeah. Right on. I have a little <laughs> anchoring right. for that. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So, so you were doing research. Getting... Yeah. And you're finding there's disparate responses from different communities of people. Some it's helping, some it's not helping. Yeah. Yeah. For some people, some of the feedback that I got was particularly engaging with more like classical approaches to meditation where you close your eyes and you're stilling the body, that that was getting them in touch with a lot of sublimated memories, things that they were trying really hard not to ruminate upon on a day-to-day basis. And a lot of these memories, a lot of these thoughts that would come online had to do with the ways in which they were being discriminated against the ways in which they were experiencing systemic oppression. And it hurt, quite literally. I mean, we know that there's a neuroanatomical overlap in the brain between the areas that process stress, and particularly chronic stress, and chronic pain. So there's a bit of a feedback loop where the more intense the stress you feel, and for longer of a duration, that is going to contribute to pain, physical pain in the body. And then that physical pain in the body then results in greater stress. And so it actually wasn't um, producing an impact as like a stress reduction tool for them. Mm -hmm. Quite the opposite. And that was what really led me to start asking, okay, well, mindful awareness that's a doorway and there are many ways to enter in through that door. Yeah. So 
are some of those like music or creating exactly. art or other I mean, all sorts of forms yes movement yes yes that was when um so at this point in time when i started to explore the relationship between music and art i was in a, a postdoctoral program at oregon health science university and that program was in neurology and um the pandemic happened, uh, COVID-19 happened about six months into my postdoc. And so initially I was going to be going like sort of the classic mindfulness intervention in schools route, but then the school shut down and I had no access to doing anything inside of schools. And around that time, the Museum of Modern Art in New York reached out to me. And um, it was their head of research. Her name is Jackie Armstrong. She reached out and she said, you know, she said, you know, Dr. King, we have been following your research with the science of social justice. That was the name of my research framework. And the science of social justice is all about exploring how social justice and well-being are one and the same thing. And they said, you know, we've been following your research here in the museum and we find it fascinating. And we also know that you're an instructor of meditation. And so we have this question. We were wondering if you would pick one work of art from inside of our museum. And with this work of art, we would like you to record a meditation. And the meditation will be an experience where you're guiding people into a certain perceptual and felt somatic relationship with this painting or whatever it is that you select. But we'd also like you to teach them about the science of social justice at the same time. And we're going to take this recording and we're going to put it with, we're going to install it with this work of art so that when people come to the museum, they can put on headphones and they can have this whole experience of learning at the intersection of science communication and art and meditation. And from that collaboration, I really started thinking to myself, I was like, hmm, okay. So the one thing that I felt was missing from that experience was music. What piece did you pick or choose? Um, it is a work by an artist named Betty Saar. So her name is spelled B-E-T-Y-E-S-A-A-R. And the piece is called Black Girl's Window. And it's still up in their collection. So for those of you who are in New York and you're listening right now and you happen to be near the Museum of Modern Art, you can, you can go in there and experience it for yourself right now. Cool. Yeah. And so that was what really led me to wonder and to collaborate with them. Um, and I developed the first scientific intervention that has ever been launched in the history of the Museum of Modern Art. Um, and in that context, um, we were exploring this theoretical map of human awareness that I developed through my research. I see your... <laughs> Okay. So this yeah. theoretical map of human awareness, it's called the systems-based awareness map. And it is designed visually to take people through eight different layers of awareness. 
and it shows the relationship between everything that is happening. Imagine that you are completely still. You're not moving whatsoever. Maybe you're in meditation. And there's like a whole complex world of what is happening just underneath your skin, right? You're experiencing memories and feelings, emotions, thoughts, feelings of vitality or health, or maybe you're even having some sort of relationship with your ancestors, right? As you're conceptualizing them, past, ancestors, past, ancestors, future. It maps all of these out onto our capacity to experience what's called a neuroscience, interoceptive awareness, which is how the, 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 the brain is producing a map of all of our internal experiences. So going through this meditation, you're saying that was the model it was working with? Mm -hmm. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. And then it moves from there into the next layer. So those are the first six layers of the map. The seventh layer of the map moves into an exploration of, well, what happens the minute that we move from stillness and we express agency? So we express it through movement or behavior relationship, just how it is that we're locating our bodies in space, right? Proprioceptive awareness. And then the very last layer of the map is an exploration of how it is that is, as individuals, we can be aware of what's going on in our society, within the culture that we're embedded in, within the broader global environment. And this is like a representation of collective awareness. So in a nutshell, the map is exploring this relationship between us, the individual, and our capacity to be aware, and then collective awareness. And what, what's the relationship between those two? And how does pain or trauma potentially impact our capacity to experience those layers of awareness? So you said that you felt that music was missing. And... Mm -hmm. What was the lack that made you thought music would fill or what glue would that provide that you now look back on? Well, when I recorded that initial meditation, so the initial meditation was with one work of art and it was my voice guiding people through this experience of viewing and being in relationship with this work of art. No music in the background. Right. Um, and so then I, I get feedback from people and some people feel as though there's a certain kind of quality of spaciousness when just listening to someone's voice and attempting to meditate. And it's a little bit too much to anchor them into the present moment experience. <laughs> That's a very political way of putting it, a quality of spaciousness. <laughs> That's like, it's like saying I, I couldn't. I had trouble paying attention. Yeah. How long was this, the meditation? Um, like 10 minutes or is it? I think it was about 15 minutes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So when I did this, when I did my next, when I did this event that I was launching my map of awareness with MoMA, we paired every single layer of the map with a work of art. So we had eight works of art total. Oh, and wow. then I worked with a dear friend of mine. His name is Orlando Villarraga. And he composed a soundtrack to that experience. It was an ambient representation of the journey through the map 
and we paired those together. So I was doing storytelling. I was like guiding people with my voice through an experience. And then they were seeing this representation of a layer of the map, pairing that with a work of art from the museum. But the music was there constantly cool. to guide the cool. experience. Yeah, I'm guessing it helped just kind of probably, if it was the right music, hold hold people through it, kind of through a through line. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I had yeah. a lot of people reach out afterwards, tell me they had never tried to meditate before, they were never interested in it. And there was something about the music and the art together that made them feel held, it made them feel secure. It definitely brought up a lot of emotion, but I think that the music and the art together created this container where they felt that they could hold the enormity of the experience a lot better than if it was just my voice alone. Hmm. So it's almost like music uh, allows for, it, it, it's like a, a bridge or a pathway. There's something about there that provides a kind of solace or accessibility for our bodies, our brains. Yeah. To process stuff, emotional things. Yeah. Or to or to even get into trance states or meditative states. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because that, you know, um I think, you know, one of my advisors at USC, you know, one time she said to me, gosh, you know, meditation, that just sounds to me like opening up Pandora's box. <laughs> like Exactly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's really that's, scary. That's the she point. Kinda, but but in her mind, she was kind of like, why would you why would you want to do that to yourself? Keep like, that in a box. Yeah. Just yeah. keep it regular. Let's just mm -hmm. keep things normal. Like mm -hmm. let's not get weird. You know, it was a little bit confusing to her, like why someone would want to explore that level of discomfort. Yeah. Well, you know, as a friend of mine, Court Johnson says, everybody graduates, so take all the time you want in the world. You could explore it next life. <laughs> yeah, no rush. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. 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 I um, like that. Wait, did you say USC? So you went, you're at UCLA and USC and then OHSU. D forgive my, I don't know the <laughs> nomenclature, post doctorate. Does that mean you have a doctorate and you're doing more work? Yep, is that what that means? That's what that means. Yeah. Hence, post yeah, okay. yeah. The postdoc post is post training after the PhD. Uh-huh. Yeah. Ambitious. Mm -hmm. And so are you finally done with school? Is my question. <laughs> <laughs> are you still uh, doing it? Well, well, you know, as I said, when we first started out this podcast, I woke up this morning so I'm still here in the school of life. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and so long as I continue to exist, you know, the education remains. Yeah. So are are you? Did you continue to do more work around art or or music, and I suppose the brain or well being? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what occupies my time right now is um, two different paths. Right now, I'm at the University of California, San Diego, UC San Diego, and I work in their empathy and compassion lab. Not a student. <laughs> um, I work as a research scientist there, and um, so specifically, it's empathy and compassion in social justice and human health. And in that job... Um, I am working on the very beginning of an empathy video game. So I would say that technology has really become 
this zone where I'm working with art to the next level of the way that I'm working with art. Um, I think that video games are digital environments in which people can really engage in some very powerful, very impactful experimentation and creativity, especially when it comes to identity, right? Like there's billions of different I, I mean, maybe billion is kind of a big word, but there are there are at least millions of different avatars. Same size word, mm -hmm. but yeah. Yeah. Or in yeah. Adventure Time, I love I'm the word <laughs> squibadillion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, video games are interesting because uh, they're participatory. Yeah. But they're also getting really immersive more and more so. I worked on a video game quite a long time ago. I just wrote some music for it. Uh, with other folks, but it was a Deepak Chopra video game. And it turns out that Deepak Chopra fans don't play video games. So it didn't sell really well. <laughs> wait, but, wait, 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 back up, wait. <laughs> lot to take what, in here. What is a, what, like, <laughs> what is a Deepak Chopra video game? I'm trying to understand. It was called Leela. And it was for uh, PlayStation, and it was it was actually, it was brilliant. My buddy Louis Kofsky was putting this together, and it you had different levels, and each level aligned with a chakra, and there was no like winning or losing really. There were activities like mine was the heart chakra, and uh -huh. there was this like uh, uh, dodecahedron type thing, and here's what was cool about the game is like the connect on it is a body sensor, right? So it was so sensitive even back then when in between the levels you would sit and breathe and it would essentially teach you meditation, but it could sense your actual breathing just from that physical movement on the sensor. And uh -oh. so it would give you biofeedback oh, just from that. Yeah. And we would, there'd be music helping you and train the brain and so forth. But yes. in my level, the mo this motion of twisting your torso from side to side is how you move the dodecahedron. So it's using like yoga movement and mudras to move the things and do the gaming where you're trying to, it's kind of like Tetris, like you're bouncing this ball and trying to get it in things and oh. avoiding things. It's fun and there's music, but you're doing things with your body and the music to get you into these states. Mm. So it's kind of cool. Yeah. Video games with biofeedback are definitely going to become huge. Yeah, now you could do it theoretically at games on your phone with an Apple Watch and have all sorts of biometric data going on. Mm -hmm. you know, a very simple device. Or not simple, but, you know, we all have them. Yeah, yeah. I don't know about Apple Watches, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, uh, Ari, I've seen there's this app uh, that uses, let's, you shake your phone and it's a muscle testing app. You know, I mm. should say the name because I know these guys. Yeah. Um, I got to remember it. Yeah. I want to say sensi, <laughs> but it's things like that where you're using tech to tap into your body and like mm -hmm. reading your body and giving you a sense of feedback about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's all, I think that's all really exciting um, and probably going to speak to younger populations, adolescents and Maybe I, I think that there's going to be a little bit of a generational divide there, at least for a little bit, until they figure out how to 
there are ways of build, building video game platforms that are meant to speak to multiple different generations at once. Or like Sudoku. Or Sudoku, yeah. or just make it that, and then my mom will play it. And <laughs> I know, I know. But if we're talking about video games to like shift human consciousness, it, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's gonna. There's got to be a way. There's got to. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, what? Tell me a bit more than about art, or I don't know if music is pushing it too far out of you know your comfort zone, but just sort of that connection between how we could use art consciously to what would be the interest for you is it depolarization is it just bringing like a higher level of awareness or is it for trauma healing or what Mm. is your interest in that i mean i'll admit that i have a very specific interest with abstract art um there is some really interesting literature in neuroaesthetics that suggests that making and viewing abstract art can produce decreases of cortisol, um, which is one of the stress hormones that people are probably pretty familiar with. And we can't say that we know exactly why, but some of the postulation is that when you are viewing abstract art or figurative art also, because it isn't literal, it's kind of Anytime that you look at something, your brain, the monkey mind, right? It's it 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 goes. It starts right. The narrative is being yeah. produced about yourself, about your identity, right? Going back to that part of our conversation, and I think that when we're viewing abstract and figurative art, there's certain functions of the brain that actually experience that art in a very embodied way meaning that the brain doesn't necessarily know that that art is outside of you. Mm. So remember I was talking about, I think I was talking about interoceptive awareness and that's what's the, the brain mapping what's happening inside of our bodies and then there's exteroceptive awareness. And this is how we know. This is outside of me and this is what's within me. And the brain is making that differentiation all the time. And when it comes to these forms of art, that delineation is not quite so present. And that's part of why a lot of people will say when they go to an exhibit that's really powerful, that they might say something like, whoa, that was really moving. That art moved me. They're actually being kind of literal, right? So the idea that certain types of art can bypass some of the rigidity of self and me and I and get under our skin and maybe activate perhaps the default mode network of the brain. And the default mode network of the brain is a cluster of um, brain regions that are in a network together. And they're largely responsible for phenomena like mind wandering. Like when you're just sitting there and you're like not really doing much of anything, you're just sort of, you know, la la la. Um, It's also um, been studied with regard to self-referencing. So when you're thinking about yourself, me, 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 I, 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 what I want, what I need, whatever. And also autobiographical memory, how you're remembering yourself. We talked about that too when it comes to dreams and the fact that, my brain is just like packed with 
all of these memories of dreams that I can't seem to really differentiate from real life anymore, <laughs> which could be a problem. And it's really interesting, some of the research that um, there's this synergy, if you will, of neuroscientists who are looking at the default mode network of the brain. They're looking at um, its relationship to music and art and meditation and psychedelics. That's exciting. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, I like instrumental music for a similar reason. It's sort of like the figurative form of music. Oh. Um, non-lyrical based. It's just not enlivening the same parts of the brain. And it's more open mm-hmm. for interpretation. And I think that's why it works well Yeah, in some ways. Because it's a canvas for your consciousness to paint on itself. It's It's not telling. It's not as literal. Yeah. Yeah. And I think. You know, and this is not me having my scientist hat on at all. This is just me, Syrah. I think people need that. I think we're walking around a lot of the time feeling like we're being told how to feel and what to think by the institutions that we work for within our family networks, within social media, and just all the media that we're surrounded with, all all the technology, social media, what have you. It can... I think being alive today can feel like there's so much of an onslaught of information that's being applied to you. And without a lot of consent, without a lot of agency, right? Because that's just sort of how the world is now. And technology is moving way faster than our nervous systems have been built to actually take in. I mean, absolutely. You know what I mean, and and I think that that can produce in and of itself a feeling of anxiety, and like, again, just speaking for myself, sometimes I have this feeling of like the way that technology is developing and and the exponential speed of it. It, it seems to be like happening without a lot of. Um, participation from the broader public, a lot of communication. You know, we don't really have a say in how things, particularly with, with AI, right? We don't really have a say in regulating how these tools are being developed and how they're being used on us. Yeah, the only say is your participation, but that's becoming harder and harder to opt out of mm-hmm. because there's many aspects that you now sort of need in order to live. Yeah. And it's becoming more like countries like China. You know, if you don't have uh, WeChat, you can't do anything. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I wish I wish we had more ability for ambiguity because a lot of this stuff is pushing us into a form of tribalism where you're you're being and that's a form of protection in itself like find your people all right we at least we're we're we got our beliefs and we're banding together right but we need to be able to hold a complexity of ideas to say i don't know or actually i feel a little of this and a little of this and i share a little of that view and this view yes and there's just no room for that anymore and that's yeah. actually i'm guessing how a lot of us feel is like I, I, I don't know. I little of this, little of that. Uh, I, I'm not sure. But you're always being pushed into a position. Yeah. 
you know, please take a stand. And it's like, okay. Um, yeah. And, and that in itself is, uh, yeah, I think we're just trying to learn how to hold a lot of information at once. Yeah. And, and not being encouraged to just hold it. If then encourage that process. Okay, now what do you think? (laughs) Yeah. What are you going to do with that? Yeah, like this pressure to like distill a pithy statement that is your stance on something. And I personally think that art and music, um, especially with what you're describing around um, instrumental music, ambient music, abstract art, are just some examples of spaces that um, or rather experiences that a lot of people have access to, doesn't really cost a lot of money to have access to, that can help us with holding paradox. And I think paradox, yeah. right? There's so much benefit to swimming in the waters of both and, and not knowing and uncertainty. And like, just, can we just be, can we just have a moment where that's okay? <laughs> yeah. Can we? Please. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's the essence of of life is living it is a paradox. It's the mystery, as the mystery the mystery traditions have said for forever. It's like that that's it. Yeah. It's like it it boils down to holding these boundary conditions, the the perfunctory nature of consciousness itself. Right. And that's that's where you get down to the ground floor is like that's what a, a koan is. It's like yeah. helping you break through the paradox by stopping the mind. There's right. no thinking your way out of it. Yeah. It's going to be a feeling your way through it and feeling of it. And that opens the doorway. Uh, but we're in a place of mind. Right. And so that's why I think art and music is so powerful. I I think we might have talked about that book, Your Brain on Art, because uh, Ivy Ross and Susan McSamon were on this podcast. We talked a lot about some of these ideas of of uh, neuroaesthetics and 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 some of the leading research going on around the benefits of because beyond beyond what we're talking about, it's true that just soaking this stuff in is quite powerful for your brain. But the next level is you know singing yourself or collaging or any form of art or any sort of creativity which again is available to all of us but we're not really taught that so much or given encouragement to have these things as part of any of our practices but it's it's, it's interesting that there's a resistance to that or we've lost our way oh. and i think part of it is because we've just pay other people to do it or we're always ingesting stuff and so there's yeah. not much room left for us to be we used to always have to do it ourselves that is such a that is such a good point, and uh, I tell you, I uh, a couple weeks ago I was co-leading a contemplative leadership retreat at a place called the Garrison Institute in upstate New York, and it's a room full of you know. I'll admit I didn't know exactly what everybody did. We didn't sit down and like read our bios before we got started. It was more like we're a group of people who want to offer heart-centered leadership of some kind in our communities, let's go. And it was one of the most powerful moments of that retreat was when we started handing out boxes of crayons and colored pencils yeah. to people. 
And just this look of wonder and glee and just like, oh, my God, how long has it been since I have even held a box of crayons and sat and thought, you know, part of the question that I had was when you hold this box of crayons, sit and think about like emotionally, what's the feeling that's drawing you to this specific color? And like follow smell that it, feeling. Right? Yeah. The smell of crayons. Oh yeah. my gosh. And can we trust that? And the number of people in the room who were like, I I I don't know if I can even remember the last time that I attempted to express myself or that I considered this to be a valid way of exploring my relationship with myself. And it was very liberating. It was very joyful. It was very childlike. Um, and can you even imagine, I'm just going to be like a little bit like provocative here just for a moment, but can you even mm -hmm. imagine if they handed out a bunch of crayons to Congress <laughs> before they got started with their deliberations? I don't even know. Like, yeah. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just being a little they'd, geeky here. I'm just being... They'd eat them. Yeah. They'd be like, yeah. <laughs> Um, no, I, look, I mean, I would love a world where, um, we were just bringing more creativity and into the, into our culture and because it helps Yeah, and that, and the president had to do ayahuasca a dozen times before taking office and, you know, things like that, or mushrooms were like, I mean, all these sorts of things we could do too to bring a bit more just awareness, yeah. uh, nature, just, you know, more of a getting access into nature. Yes. Um, it's really simple things. It's, it's really just rhythms we're out of touch with and, th and things that, uh, well, technology of course is great, but it's also, we've removed a lot of our natural rhythms. Yeah. Just from having electricity and being able to stay up late now, you know, or like all the things we can do that we didn't used to be able to do. I know. Um, I know. But then there's like, yeah, you know, podcasting and all these other things we can do. And so there, there are pros and cons. But I, I am interested in, I was just interested in hearing a bit more about these areas of interest between uh, particularly art and how it was helping people and then sort of studying that with the brain. So it sounds... Sounds like something you're going to continue with. And that's at UCSD? Yeah, that's at UCSD. Okay. And then um, this map of human awareness that I told you about that started out as a two-dimensional rendering, I'm building an AI company right now in order to create a 3D interactive version of that same map that is a well-being guide. Hmm. Um, and I'm very, very, I'm very excited about that because the intention of the technology is to weave in real time storytelling data with biometric data that you would get from like a wearable and really produce this moment to moment data visualization guide. Like how is my, it's a representation of awareness, right? It's not the actual thing. But it's intended to be this guide of like, how is my awareness shifting and changing moment to moment over time? And then, but we know 
or at least I'll speak for myself, I'll say that awareness is the first step. And then I think it's, what do you do with that? So that awareness map, that map of human awareness, if you want, there's choice on this platform. And so then the choice is, if you'd like to explore further, you get another map. And that map is the loving awareness map. And that map is meant to be a guide to show people, if I'd like to work on cultivating a little bit more compassion, more gratitude, more forgiveness, like whatever qualities, felt qualities of being would really support my well-being, here's how my awareness of self and collective self might shift and change. That's sort of like step two cool. on the platform. Yeah. So, yeah, using technology to give you feedback on an increased sense of consciousness and awareness and being in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the intention. Well, it sounds it sounds complicated and deep. It sounds good. I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of layers there I could go. Uh, I'm guessing those layer, those maps can keep going. Oh, yeah, in, to infinity. Yeah. Which... Mapping consciousness. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, very cool. Very cool. Well, I mean, I know we're just getting into the uh, the beginnings of a lot of this, but I appreciate you bringing us more into your world. Um, mm. What are what are ways for people to interact with you? I mean, I ran into you in the world. Seems like you're out there doing a lot of things. I am. I am, yeah. and I'm so happy that we ran into each other because I had been. I think I told you that I use your music a lot when I'm teaching meditations oh, cool. and guided experiences with art. So I was already like rocking out to the art that you put into the world. And then when I found that you were coming to that event, it was just like a beautiful serendipity oh, cool. to me. Um, and people, yeah. So I, oh, gosh, you know, I mean, plugging myself always feels strange, but you can find me on Instagram at mindheartcollective. Mind Heart Collective. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. that's also my website, mindheartcollective.com. And at those two places, I um, on my website, you can find all the podcasts that I've ever been on and just different lectures, TED Talks, just a wide range of resources to connect. I believe there's some um, meditations on there as well. And then on Instagram, that's usually where I post about upcoming events where I'm lecturing, teaching, guiding meditations, art experiences, and the like. Cool. Well, I'll put that in the show notes. Mm. Thank you so much, Krishna. It's it's, yeah. it's really been spectacular. I got to talk about a lot of things here with you that I uh, don't <laughs> in my more academic spaces. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, I hope we can continue the conversation and yeah. uh, keep it up. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's been an honor. Well, thank you, Sarah, for coming on the show. Uh, we'll go even further. That was a wonderful, like, dipping our toe into uh, who you are and what you're into, and I'm looking forward to more. This song is called Bird's Eye. It is the fourth single from Music for the Deck of the Titanic, which is coming out November 3rd. Uh, Seattle, November 3rd as well, and LA Live, 
November 7th with Mary M. Go to eastforest.org to uh, pre get the vinyl ordered and to grab a ticket to one of these shows. Thanks for helping us spread the word, and thank you to everyone on our Patreon who supports. That's patreon.com slash eastforest. Uh, much more to come in the future. Uh, we've got a really exciting thing at the top of next year, a psilocybin retreat, the first ever in Costa Rica. Uh, updates on the Music for Mushrooms doc and much, much more. And something in San Francisco, I believe, in December. So anyway, eastforce.org, get on the newsletter and uh, talk to you soon. Keep walking your walk. Don't take any shit. But if you do, do it with grace. It's a shadow spy. It's a shadow spy